Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The PBS series, Finding Your Roots, which airs on our TV station, ATL-PBA, has a tremendous following. A major reason is the host, Dr. Henry Louis Gates, who may well be America's favorite public intellectual. Dr. Gates imparts warmth and ease with his curiosity, as well as his interest in exploring what makes us American. Sabin Streeter is the showrunner and senior producer of Finding Your Roots. Later this hour, He'll tell us about the intensive research involved in the making of Finding Your Roots and share some memorable stories of guests. First, children's stories in book form. Miriam Udell is Associate Professor in German Studies and the TAM Institute of Jewish Studies at Emory University. We first spoke after the release of her wonderful anthology of children's literature. Honey on the Page was released. More recently, Professor Udell visited with us to talk about Hanukkah stories in December, and she joins us now to speak about stories for Purim. Professor Udell, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you so much, Lois. It is a delight to be back with you. Well, it is always a delight to delve into Honey on the Page, a treasury of Yiddish children's literature. And as the Jewish holiday of Purim begins at sundown on February 25th and continues through the 26th. The stories you've chosen for us today relate to the holiday. First, would you tell us the story of Purim? So this is a story that is recounted in the Scroll of Esther, which is part of the later books of the Bible. And it is a story of 
a genocidal plot that is very narrowly averted when a foolish king falls under the influence of a wicked advisor who um, wants to exterminate the Jews in the large kingdom of, of Persia. And it is really through the, the bravery and the wisdom of a young Jewish woman named Esther working in concert and, and taking some advice from her uncle Mordechai that she is able to foil this plot and save the Jewish people. This is a Bible story with a feminist angle. Definitely. I would say that there's there's more than one feminist angle here um, in interpretive traditions that we have. The, the foolish king, Ahasuerus, originally is married to a woman named Vashti, who is emerging uh, somewhat more recently as a little bit of a feminist heroine, because very early on in the book, she is commanded to come and dance at one of the king's drinking parties. And presumably the, the sense of the of the Bible is that she's supposed to dance naked, um, wearing only her diadem, and she refuses. And that actually sets the part of the plot in motion where a new queen needs to be found to replace her. And that ends up being Esther, who is who goes through the, the process of a, a kind of beauty pageant uh, that's part of the selection of the new queen but is really very good at keeping her counsel and figuring out when to share and how to share information in a way that is going to, um, to save her people. Mm. Now, why is Purim and the observance of the holiday special for children? So Purim has really become very much a children's holiday. It, it now serves as a dress-up holiday, somewhat akin to Halloween in the United States. And this is a, a somewhat new phenomenon, but Purim has always been about the sharing of food and fellowship. And one of the core activities on Purim is enjoying a really lavish festive meal. And the rabbis actually viewed that as a requirement or an obligation. And so if people were going to be obligated to, to make this festive meal, then it also needed to become obligatory to ensure that everybody could enjoy that meal. And so charitable giving becomes one of the major themes of Purim and being able to involve children in those acts of generosity and making sure that everybody has access to a celebratory feast, um, that became one of the, the core principles of the day. Yes. The first children's story we'll talk about from Honey on the Page is titled Kids by Mordechai Spector. What does it tell? So this is a really wonderful story for highlighting the capacity of children to lead to really be the leaders in acts of radical kindness and generosity that kind of um, disrupt the, 
the adults um, order of things. So this is a story about two boys. Now we would call them tweens. They're 10 and 11 years old. Their names are Lebichke and Notke, and they are best friends. They do everything together. They walk to school, they walk to synagogue, they pray out of the same prayer book at synagogue. And one day when they are at their prayers, very close to the Purim holiday, they are accosted by old Schmetel, the water carrier, who says to them, look, kids, I have very little energy and I have my grandchildren living with me because my adult daughter was widowed. I need help. Can you go out on Purim when everybody is feeling that spirit of charitable giving and generosity and raise some money so that I can get my eldest granddaughter a pair of shoes? And the boys really have to kind of pluck up their courage and take themselves seriously as fundraisers. And they end up going from house to house and they are met with suspicion, with bemusement. Surely they are too young to be raising money for a charitable purpose. They must really want to get sweets for themselves. So they're met with a lot of skepticism and actually some harshness when they first visit the most prosperous householders in town. And then they get some really good advice from the shoe seller in the market who tells them, don't go to the houses of the rich, go to the humble homes of the ordinary Jews and tell them your purpose and nobody's going to send you away empty handed. And so they really spend the whole day running themselves ragged, um, going from, from door to door and stating their errand and collecting money. And at the end of the day, they are able to visit Shmerel in his home, just as he's about given up hope and the, the grandkids are sitting around feeling depressed because they're not having a lavish feast. They, they barely have an ordinary dinner. And the boys are able to dump out all of the loot that they've collected, which includes the money that they've raised and some special food, um, some treats for, for the kids in that family. And all of the, the sorrow of that impoverished household really turns to rejoicing. Mm, it is just such a beautiful story, so uplifting. And I have to point out your translation is just gorgeous. Do you have a copy of the book nearby, Miriam? I do. I'm holding one. Would you please read from the bottom of page 65? Because it's such a gorgeous depiction of place. And well, just go ahead and then we'll talk. So this is so much fun because I got to learn all of these food words. Night had already begun to fall. The sun had set long ago, but in the windows of Jewish homes, it was light as befits a great holiday. People everywhere were sitting happily at their Purim feasts. The tall, beautiful loaves of rich Purim egg challah, fish, and other delicacies shone from the tables. Children's pockets were full of Purim pastries, hamantaschen, 
little horses and birds made of sugar and boxes of sweets wrapped up in gold paper. In their hands, they held layered fruit cake, honey cake, and saffron spiced cake with big raisins. The door almost never closed. One went in and another came out with shalachmonis, gift baskets of food from relatives or good friends. Everybody rejoiced on the holiday and the kids rejoiced most of all. Ah, but on the other side of town, the poor part of town, a very different scene unfolds. Sure. Near a hill stood a low-lying hut. Here, too, lived a Jew, Reb Schmetl, the old water carrier. Here, too, were children whose grandfather loved them no less than other parents loved their children. But what could be seen here on this merry evening? A penny candle flickered on the table. No Purim-worthy yellow egg challah, just one stale roll, which had been set aside for the purpose since Shabbos. At the table sat old Schmetl, the water carrier, feeling very sad. The dim candle didn't bother him, nor did the stale roll. He was already used to it. He too would have had a happy holiday in his low hut if only his beloved grandchildren had been happy. But how were they sitting at the table? One child sat sound asleep in his chair, another dozed, one child sighed, and the eldest grandchild, Leichke, was even more forlorn. She had lost all hope, no shoes. She wouldn't be going out for a walk so fast, maybe barefoot in summer, but summer was still a long way away. Now, in come the boys with all the money and goodies they've collected from various modest families along with the shoes that were donated by the cobbler. So the granddaughter gets her wish, and it's impossible to separate the message at the core of this story about wealth not being measured materially. I was hoping that you could talk about the importance of the ancient teachings, of course, and the emphasis on charity, the necessity of charity, but also that this author seems to impart a humanist, dare I say, anti-capitalist message here. Is the author of reflecting the social movement of his time. Sure. So this is one of the great delights of Yiddish children's literature, where we're really able to see the overlay of ancient themes, ancient wisdom and concerns, and the modern guise that they wear as part of movements for greater social justice, greater economic equality. And Mordecai Spector, this is actually one of the earliest stories that I include in Honey on the Page. Mordecai Spector is really working um, 
just before the, the workers' movement and various leftist and radical movements really crystallize in the Yiddish-speaking world. But we see him here as a, as a forerunner to other kinds of storytelling that are going to develop over the next decade following him. This story was published in 1914. And I think it does take us all the way back to a very um, venerable Jewish response to the drama of this story, which is that when we feel a, a sense of relief, which is the, the kind of dominant emotion at the end of the, of the scroll of Esther, that relief and that sense of abundance needs to spill over into charitable giving. It needs to express itself as a concern for making sure that the most vulnerable members of society are taken care of and that they can partake in the same joy and exuberance as the most privileged members of society. So it's an idea that goes back through centuries and the form that it comes to take in the 20th century is this this humble cobbler saying to the boys, look, the rich people in town think that the world is their plaything. Don't rely on them. Know that you're going to meet the needs of the community by going to the humble, modest members of the middle class. I love it. The next story you have for us is titled The King and the Rabbi by Solomon Bostomsky. What's the synopsis? Sure, so this one is a fairy tale and it starts out in fairy tale fashion. Once upon a time in a faraway land lived a king and the king has a dream that something terrible is going to happen to him unless he can find a man who was born in the same year, in the same month, and on the same day, who will somehow release the king from this terrible fate that's been foretold in the dream. And the king hears word from somewhere, very, very vague, that there's a famous tzaddik, a famous righteous rabbi, who shares his birthday and the king goes to visit him and the man very quickly proves that he has supernatural abilities to understand the present and to predict the future. And so he is living in apparent poverty and the king asks him, you know, if you're so insightful, why are you living here in this, in this hovel? And the man says, no, no, I'm rich. You're rich in your palace and I'm rich in my study of the Torah. Somebody bring me a mirror. And they have to go and borrow a mirror because he doesn't even have a mirror in his household. And he's able to show the king through the mirror what's actually happening back at the palace. And it turns out that there is a plot of palace intrigue where the king's senior courtier is actually plotting against his life together with the queen. So it's not an exact replica 
of the Purim story, but it incorporates a lot of elements where um, there's a, a king who's kind of susceptible through his own lack of wisdom or insight. There is a wise advisor from the Jewish community who, who actually wants to help the king to steer the ship of state correctly. And there is a corrupt advisor who is power hungry and who's plotting. This has scary elements. I mean, Brothers Grimm comes to mind. Was that theme common to this writer, Solomon Bostomsky? So Solomon Bostomsky spent his entire career as an educator and a folklorist. And you really see both of those career elements at work in this story because he does want to educate children about one of the harsher phenomena of modern European Jewish life, which is a blood libel. The, the crux of the plot turns on this corrupt advisor hatching a plan to blame the Jews of the kingdom for everything and accusing them of harming a Christian child in order to secure his blood for nefarious ritual purposes. Of course, this is a kind of falsehood that really was propagated in Europe over the course of centuries. Um, it contains no merit. And Bostomsky really wanted to put this reality before children in a somewhat softened way. And what I mean by that is I think that the, the fairy tale setting removes it a little bit from real life and real history. And it allows children to encounter this idea with a little bit of distance. Once again, at the heart of the story is a message that wealth cannot be measured in terms of material goods. When the king visits the rabbi, he, the king says, I see that you are a great and holy man. Help me to understand one thing. Why are you so poor? After all, you were born under the same stars as I was. Once again, the emphasis on, or I should say, the de-emphasis of aspiring to wealth is important to the story. How common are the themes of poverty and the importance of charity throughout Yiddish children's literature. I had to select just one or two themes that really transcended every corner of Yiddish children's literature from the people who were just Yiddishists, who just wanted to see Yiddish culture flourish to those who were socialists communists, Zionists. This is a theme that we see reflected in story after story across the entire political spectrum. There is a really huge emphasis on charitable giving 
and the need to correct economic inequality in society. It's a beautiful thing. Miriam Udell, I hope you'll come back and share more of this treasury of children's literature. It's just a joy to talk with you and to learn from you. Thank you so much, Lois. I feel the same way. Miriam Udell is Associate Professor of Yiddish Language, Literature, and Culture at Emory University. She is also the author of Honey on the Page, a treasury of Yiddish children's literature. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free. And at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Dr. Henry Louis Gates may be America's favorite public intellectual. In addition to his scholarly work as a Harvard University professor, Dr. Gates imparts warmth and ease with his curiosity, and those qualities are central to his role as host of the PBS series Finding Your Roots. Sabin Streeter is the showrunner, senior producer, and director of Finding Your Roots. Mr. Streeter is an Emmy Award-winning producer and director with an extraordinary body of work. He joins us now via Zoom. Sabin Streeter, welcome to City Lights. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. You collaborated with Henry Louis Gates on this series, The African Americans, in 2013. Did that work lead to finding your roots? Well, yeah, sort of. So Skip and I had, had met when he was first doing uh, African American Lives, which was really the precursor show to Finding Your Roots, where he looked at, at uh, African American history through the lens of genealogy. And uh, I was working for a little documentary company. Skip was looking for a company to help him get this thing off the ground. And the company I was with ended up doing that. I was not that involved in that show. I was sort of involved in the beginning of it. And some of the details, a friend of mine ran it for Skip, uh, several friends of mine. And, but I got to know him then. And then when he was doing that series, Many Rivers to Cross, uh, the African-Americans, it was just a happy coincidence that we sort of came back together and I did that for him. And then since then, I've, <laughs> since then we've kind of been joined at the hip. Um, and I, I started doing Finding Your Roots. I directed one episode that first season and then sort of, you know, became more senior the second season. And by the third season, it was the main thing I was doing. And, uh, you know, I, it, it, it was just a happy kind of 
confluence of my schedule, Skip's schedule, and the fact that this show became successful. It's in its eighth, in its eighth season now, and that's just very unusual that you're able to have. Uh, I've never had that before, and 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 very few people do, where you have that kind of continuity in documentary television, where you can have a relationship with with someone like Dr. Gates uh, for all these years and really refine something you're working on together. It's been super rewarding for me. I hope you'd say the same. <laughs> <laughs> How did the idea for the show emerge? Did he pitch it? Did you pitch it? Well, Dr. Gates or Skip, everyone calls him Skip, so I call him Skip. But Dr. Gates, uh, he, he likes to tell it that, well, first of all, he's had a lifelong interest in genealogy. And he's an incredible guy with an incredible array of interests. But he has been passionate about genealogy. If you read his books, since he was a little kid, he remembers, you know, wanting to put his family tree together as, as a very young person and having, you know, sort of fundamental questions about, you know, unspoken of white ancestors and just various things about his family. So he's always been passionate about genealogy. He put together this series uh, for PBS where, they were, where we were going to look at African-American history through the lens of genealogy. You know, Oprah helped him. Quincy Jones helped him get the funding off the ground. Uh, the show was quite successful. It was two seasons, uh, you know, um, but it was a limited series. And I guess I, I believe the story he tells is there was someone at Coca-Cola who was um, who was African-American, who was one of Coca-Cola was one of the sponsors of the show. And Skip got an email from a woman saying, you know, you're a racist. Why do, why do you only focus on black people? Why don't you do people of all? of all races. And this struck a chord with Skip and he went to Coca-Cola and said, you know, could I do a series, you know, would there be funding for a series of all races? And I guess Coca-Cola said, sure, <laughs> you know, we sell as much Coke to white people as black people. Um, <laughs> uh, now, whether that story is totally true, totally apocryphal, I mean, it, it, to some extent, the the series has kind of bled one in, into another. The success of African-American lives was significant. Skip has been, you know, prominent public intellectual. Probably we could have done whatever we wanted to. But I would say that email, you know, we talked about this fair amount. The email he got from just an anonymous viewer, I mean, I'm sure she attached a name to her email, but I, I, I don't know it, saying, you know, in quite stark language that Skip, you know, that Skip was, was, should be looking at all races and not just African-Americans, it did strike a chord with him. And he very much took that to heart, even though it was quite critical. <laughs> um, we, we get a lot of emails, as I'm sure you do. And, you know, some of them are praiseful, but the bulk of them are have issues. <laughs> oh, yes. Public broadcasting viewers and listeners are nothing if not opinionated. Yes. And we read them, and and some of them really strike a chord. And that you know, even if their tone is a bit, it's a bit confrontational. Skip is probably the least racist person I know, but that one um, definitely struck a chord with them and, and had an influence. Well, uh, the Coca Cola connection will have special meaning for our listeners and viewers. So thank you for sharing that today. Again, I, I'm not 100% sure it's true, but it's a story that we like to tell. The apocryphal Coca-Cola connection. Your work as editor of GIG, an oral history of the contemporary workplace, recalls the approach of Studs Terkel with his working interviews of everyday people. Finding Your Roots focuses on celebrities. Yet I wondered 
if you find similarities or commonality in what we can learn from the subjects? So that's a great question. And it's actually something I've thought about myself a fair amount. And, you know, one of the main things we do get from our viewers is why don't you do ordinary people? Why are you doing celebrities? The answer is complicated, but I think, you know, first of all, celebrities are a way to to draw in a wide audience at the most basic level. Uh, you know, everybody does not have a connection to a given quote unquote ordinary person, but many, many people have connections to well-known people. So in terms of looking for a wide audience, this made sense and it has worked very well for us. Um, so we hesitate to change the formula, although we have, we have talked about incorporating quote unquote ordinary people. And we have tried to broaden the range of what a celebrity means. So last season we did three well-known scientists. They were not by any means celebrities. I would say that the challenges of sitting at a table uh, surrounded by bright lights and talking for four hours, as these interviews often are, is something that is celebrities do better at. They are used to that. They are used to conversation of about their lives. They're used to handling uh, questions about their emotions. They're used to expressing emotion. And the show is very much about somebody learning and processing what they're learning and expressing emotion about it. And also expressing interpretations and other things. You know, we look for a wide range of, of well-known people and we do try to broaden that, but we do for a lot of different reasons, look for people who are accustomed to being in the camera and who are well-known. Now that said, I think that the Studs Terkel approach that really, and it's absolutely true, Gig was a we self-acknowledged effort to update Studs Terkel. We talk about that in the introduction of the book and the book's still in print over 20 years later. And it was an amazing thing to work on. And I was, we were given, it was not just me, but me and several other editors were given a nice budget <laughs> uh, and given the chance to spend a, you know over a year interviewing uh, a lot of different people who are not celebrities and i would say that the, the common ground here is that if you if you start to ask a celebrity about their ancestors the degree to which they're a celebrity dissolves pretty quickly and you know you start talking about their childhoods their parents childhoods what they know of their grandparents childhoods and they are no longer promoting their movies. They're no longer promoting their books. They're no longer promoting their ideas and their brands so much as just talking about, you know, they, they are becoming, so to speak, more ordinary. And we are looking for those moments as we edit. And then of course, as you journey back into someone's family tree, even the most well-known people, you very quickly encounter people who, whose lives are completely undocumented. I mean, that's one of the really fun things about our show is that we're doing really original research about people who have never been mentioned in any form before. You know, there are some exceptions. We did Anderson Cooper a number of years ago and, you know, his ancestry <laughs> traces back to the Vanderbilts and yes. you know, they're much studied. But for the most part, even the most well-known, well-celebrated people, you're two generations back and you're just in total obscurity. And I find that trying and trying to, you know, bring those kinds of lives to life from the bare records we can find, very stimulating and very much the challenge of what we're doing. And it definitely connects to Studs Terkel and to the sort of, for me at least, I mean, uh, the earlier things I did in terms of, you know, the basic questions of what's important in a life. What do we want out of our lives? What are we hoping for? What are we getting? Which I think is a lot of what Studs Terkel looked at. And I, also, how are we experiencing race in, in real time? How did our ancestors experience it? What can we learn from them? Um, 
and you know, sometimes you can't learn anything at all. Uh, you know, but but sometimes you know, when we're lucky, you, there are real moments of connection. How do you select guests for the show? <laughs> we have a giant dartboard and we throw darts against it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sort of. No, we get, we get our guests from a lot of different ways. So Dr. Gates, you know, before the pandemic, is on the road all the time. He's constantly meeting people and is constantly meeting people at conferences and events. And, you know, even on, we met Tina, he met Tina Fey on an airplane back from Los Angeles. So he, he's a extremely social, friendly, warm. He's just like he seems on camera, gets along with everybody. And he loves the show, so he's constantly asking people who he meets to be on the show, which is wonderful for us. In addition, we obviously he obviously has a wish list of people he's never met, and we are sort of curating that wish list with him and constantly writing letters, trying to get in touch with people. We don't, it's public television, we do not pay our guests, we do not do anything more than provide their genealogy. So in some cases, it can be tricky, you know, convincing people to be on the show, although as, as the show has gained prominence, that's become less so. A lot of times, it's just a matching up schedule. These people are very busy, and so is Dr. Gates. And so it, it, it can be challenging to, even if someone wants to do the show, uh, to get their schedule to line up with Dr. Gates. In some way, there's some people we've been chasing for years in that regard. Also, sometimes we, we can't find anything, or we can't find sufficient stuff in their family. We start to go down a, 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 with a guest, and we, we can't find enough. And so at that point, we give them our research, and we say, we're sorry. Sometimes it takes years. We're going to do somebody this March, I hope, who we've been working on their genealogy for two years. So we we had hoped to they have a, a DNA mystery we've been trying to solve. So we'd obviously hope to schedule them about two years ago, but but we couldn't uh, because we couldn't solve the mysteries. And and then you know as the season progresses and as we see who's who said yes, who we can film, who we can match up, we begin to look at how we'll form episodes and we'll begin to say. Things like, oh, it would be wonderful. It looks like we have a, you know, series this year, a series of really good stories about Irish Americans. Can we find another person with Irish American roots that we could pair with these people? So we'll do a little bit of that. But really, it is a, uh, we invite hundreds of people every season, and it is a attempt to mix and match thematic things that work for us with people's schedules at the most, I mean, I know that doesn't sound very romantic or intellectually stimulating, but it is, it is a full-time job trying to match Dr. Gates with these, with these people and to get, to get a good roster of guests, a diverse roster uh, with different kinds of stories and different kinds of backgrounds. So there's a lot of, I guess there's a lot that goes into it um, and a lot of hoping, <laughs> a lot of time hoping people will say yes. The senior producer of Finding Your Root, Sabin Streeter. We'll be back with more of that conversation after a short break. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. We're back with Sabin Streeter, the senior producer of Finding Your Roots, the PBS series with Dr. Henry Louis Gates. Here's what goes into their research. One thing that is good about the show or is attractive about the show to our audiences is that it follows the same process that, you know, you or I would follow if we wanted to do our genealogy. We ask our guests to write down everything they know about their families. And we ask them to, when they say yes, to, you know, give it, to give us a DNA sample. And 
Then we um, had that tested by multiple companies. And we also asked them if there's anybody in their family, you know, uh, who's a family genealogist. And in many cases, there is a, you know, an aunt, a cousin, an uncle, somebody who has more time, <laughs> who's generally older, who's done the genealogy, who's done some research. And it's crucial to start with the family because, you know, your family knows things that just aren't in the public records, particularly, you know, recent public records are not available. You need the family cooperation. I mean, you could go out and hire a private detective, whatever, whatever, but, but for the most part, you really need the family's cooperation. You need to get back usually to the, to the great grandparents, to when public records become available. And so once we get that, we start to fact, and sometimes family will give us, you know, back to the middle ages. And we start to look at it and we also start to build our own family trees and see how much the family knows versus, you know, what the family lore is, whether it's true, whether it's false, whether in most cases, family lore is what you would call partly true. It's usually got kernels of truth in it, but often not. Um, so we, we rigorously look at what the, what the family gives us to make sure it's true, but we need it as a starting point. And then from there, we go and, you know, start building our own trees and focusing on stories that we think will be interesting. The DNA we use two ways. One, we sort of use to fact check the family story. So in other words, we compare their DNA matches to publicly available databases to see if you, you know, if you match up with people that have put their DNA into these databases and put their family trees in. And if your, if your family trees match up with their family trees. Sometimes there are subtle differences, but sometimes we'll discover that you are not who you think you are. In other words, your grandparent, it's, it's almost always a father, uh, you know, a, a male line. You know, your grandfather that you thought was your grandfather is not actually biologically related to you. That happens periodically. Once we've had it find out from looking at your DNA, I guess DNA, that their father was not who they thought he was. Oh, my. Uh, yeah. And so if there is something very sensitive, like, for instance, that, we will call the guest before the interview and we will say, look, we found something out that's very personal. We can tell you on camera or we can tell you off camera. What would you like? We can stop now. We can go forward. We won't tell them what we've learned or, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll sort of go a little bit. We obviously, we, we don't, we don't give them any editorial control. It's PBS, but we do want to, we don't want to bring them on camera and say, Hey, your dad's not your dad or your, your living grandmother had an affair. You know, if the people are dead, it's another issue, but you know, anyway, so there are some very sensitive things we uncover and sometimes that stops the process there. Sometimes, you know, in the case of, of the, of the person we found out his father was not his biological father. He wanted to be on the show, Joe Madison, a, who's a fantastic radio host. Uh, and it was a great episode. He came on as like, he's basically like, I sort of had some suspicions, but like, <laughs> let me hear it. What happened? And, you know, it was a wonderful episode and a wonderful interview, but you know, Certainly by all rights, he, we would have been fine if he said, no, I don't want to air this on public. So it, it is a, it is a multi-step process where the DNA is telling us some things, the paper trail is telling us something else, always the DNA we privilege. I mean, if the D, if your DNA is telling you, you're not who you think you are, well, that's what we're going with because you know, DNA doesn't lie, but we're really researching almost up until the end of the process. Cause you could research forever. There's some things we, 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 we can get 80% of the way there. We'll tell the guests in the interview, you know, we don't know. But then sometimes later, something will come up and we'll contact the guest and, you know, tell them a little more. It doesn't stop with the interview, although, you know, it, it mostly stops. Wow. I have some favorite reveal moments from past shows. 
Larry David and Bernie Sanders. Was <laughs> one. That's one for the ages. That was a very fun show. And I loved the moment when Wanda Sykes told Dr. Gates how disappointed she was that she had no American Indian roots because she was hoping to get some casino money, as she put it. Yes. That's the, well, the, the uh, you know, most of our African-American guests, that's one of the most common things they come to us with is a family story about Native American roots, that they have a great-grandmother who was Native American or, you know, it's very, very, very rarely true. You know, I would say 90% of our African-American guests claim Native American heritage and, you know, in the low, maybe 5% actually have it in very low numbers. And if it's a very tragic part of African-American history, what they're talking about, the high cheekbones, the smooth hair, the, you know, the light skin is not Native American, but it's European. And it's, you know, it's, 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 so yes, that, the one, that's a Wanda Sykes is a, it's a very colorful, memorable crystallation of a process that many of our guests go through. That was one we could show on camera. (laughs) 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 But that is a very, it's a very common piece of family lore in black and black families. And it's almost always false. Uh, But Larry David, at least for the day that we spent with him, is exactly, exactly like what he seems to be. Uh, (laughs) Very much as he appeared on camera, very funny, drove himself to the set, no fuss, no hair, no makeup, and just super excited and surprised at everything we showed him. Um, It was very, that was a really memorable day. And Bernie was, you know, uh, is also, I mean, he's just Bernie. It really came through. And, And the fact they were cousins you know, we obviously couldn't have planned that. We, we scheduled both of them because they're big names. And the fact that they're distant DNA cousins was just like gravy for us. And they, they were both so excited by it. And I, I'm not sure if they've actually met since then, but we put them in touch and I know they, they hope to meet. What um, timing too. You know, the TV gods were smiling on us. <laughs> well, you mentioned the tragic reasons for African-Americans presuming they have Native American background and similarly tragic circumstances with Eastern European Jews and records being destroyed. Well, I guess that could apply to Central European Jews as well. So how complicated is it to arrive at a narrative for someone's roots when you have these missing links? Well, you can only do what you have. And so, you know, depending on your ethnic groups and their different ones that really have, it's very different possibilities. And it's not, you know, Eastern European Jews, basically for many of them, their families, you know, came here well before the Holocaust. But even so, they lived in communities where that were destroyed in the Holocaust and, and destroyed I mean, that part of Europe was just ravaged, first by the Soviets, then by the Nazis, then again by the Soviets. It is a tragic set of interlocking stories. So, you know, for many Eastern European Jews, we, we, we can only find the record that brought them to America. We can't find any, and, and that may or may not name where their family was from in Eastern Europe. It may name the town, it may not name the town. The name of the town may have changed and shifted. A lot of times people just say Russia, <laughs> which is, you know, the case. So, you know, and we will, we will always try, but in a lot of cases, it's just, there's nothing there. You know, Irish families also, you know, the English, you know, went through Ireland and 
destroyed a lot of their churches and the church records were essential. And then Ireland, for some mysterious reason, decided to pulp its national census in the 1920s to, to get recycled paper. So uh, Ireland self-immolated uh, many of its national records. So in a lot of cases, it's the same thing for our Irish guests. You know, we do what we can and we look at, and in many cases, we, we try to make something of the loss of records. We talk to the guests. This is as far back as we can go. And this is why. In a lot of cases, it's because your ancestors were really, really mistreated or were coming from some really tough situation. And that can be very meaningful just to see the most distant record, whether it's a, an immigration record from the 1880s or the 1870 census for an African-American or an 1820 record that ties your family to Ireland. So we, we look for things that we think will be meaningful stories. But even if we don't have a story, sometimes just the, the records themselves tell a history that's meaningful. Sabin, can you tell us some of the guests who will be featured in this new season? Well, so coming up, we have we have four more episodes of season seven that have some great guests that have Mandy Patinkin and Audrey McDonald. We're doing an episode about, you know, sort of people with Broadway roots and what their deeper roots look like. We have Don Lemon and Gretchen Carlson in an episode uh, about sort of path-breaking journalists, and that's really interesting. And we have, we're doing John Lithgow, who descends from uh, really early Americans. He has ancestors who came over on the Mayflower. And he's just, a, you know, it's a lovely, warm, fun interview. How does finding your roots exemplify what it means to be American? Oh, that's a really good question. I mean, it, it, I mean, that's sort of at the core of what we're doing. We're looking at the fundamental diversity of America, the fact that America was diverse from its beginnings, economically diverse, as well as racially diverse and socially diverse, different religions and different practices of all kinds. You know, diversity has been our strength from the start. It continues to be our strength. It's amazing how much our guests want to celebrate, our guests of all uh, races, creeds, and colors want to celebrate their diversity and the diversity of America, including recent immigrants. We, 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 you know, we, we do a lot of recent immigrants on the show. You know, everybody comes from somewhere and everybody has a story and everybody, when they get here, has an experience that maps their family background. You know, again, we look at a lot at what, at not only where the people came from and what their lives were like there, but what it was like to be an immigrant to America. And it was not always easy. And a lot of sacrifices were made along the way, even for people we now think of as, quote unquote, true Americans today. I mean, you know, if you were Irish, if you were Italian, if you were German uh, and you came here, there were there were some significant barriers to assimilation. And in the process of assimilation, you gave up a lot. You know, obviously the obvious thing is you gave up your language, but, you know, it's tough to leave your home and it takes a special person to pack up everything and go to a totally different country with different culture, with a different culture and different customs, often get stuck fighting in their wars. And of course, for the, for the, you know, our African-American guests, you know, they, they, their ancestors just didn't even make that decision. They were, you know, and that is a, you know, a, a fundamental part of our diversity as well. People who were brought here against their will. And yet we do come together. So I think that the show looks at the, you know, celebrates the mixing pot, but also looks pretty carefully and repeatedly at the costs. And I think it's, only, you know, in some way, it's only by looking at the costs and the challenges that our ancestors face that we can appreciate what it is that we built, which is a society that, you know, is truly, truly diverse, even if it's not 
100% functioning at the moment. <laughs> you know, it's like there, there's no, we're not going back. The genie is not being put in the bottle. We are diverse to our core and we sort of need to accept that. But at the same time, the tensions of diversity, I think we explore pretty heavily. I mean, the, the, our current sort of problems that we're having are longstanding. They're not new. Sabin Streeter, this has been fascinating. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. It's really been a pleasure. We, 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 we love talking about the show. We love the fact that people want to watch the show. It's really, it's an honor to work on. It's really, and it's also, it's a, it's a super honor to work with Dr. Gates, who just has so many ideas and so much passion for this subject and is you know, really just so involved. I mean, everything I'm talking about are these things that he has put in motion and is heavily involved in. And it's just, it's, it's been an eight year run and it's been really, you know, just incredibly rewarding. Sabin Streeter. Senior producer of the PBS show Finding Your Roots. Season 7 is out now. This evening at 6, our PBS station, ATL-PBA, will host a virtual conversation with Sabin Streeter and WABE's Morning Edition host, Lisa Rayum. More information about that event will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll be on the dock of the bay to hear about a delightful new children's story set to Otis Redding's famous song, City Lights producer is Summer Evans. Shelley Canavy is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Thanks for listening to member-supported WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.